0: This is the Guardian. Today, extortionate fees, damp and mould. How did renting in the UK get this bad? Hello.
1: Hi. Hi, I'm Hannah. Nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you. Hi. So my name is Agraine and I I work for a domestic abuse organisation. Um, and I lived in this house for coming up for two years now with some friends
0: and my uh, boyfriend as well. How many people are living in here? So there's five of us living here at the moment. What made you want to move to this area in the first place then, and, and what attracted you about this house? Because it looks... Looks beautiful from the outside. Yeah, I mean, we
1: saw this house on the market and we were living in a really horrible house in um Broccoli before, where there was a lot of, you know, classic London renting problems. But so we saw this place and it's incredible, like this amazing big old Georgian house. And the the rent uh, rate that was on for was quite high, and we managed to negotiate it down a bit. Um and we just couldn't believe our luck like we've got an amazing massive garden we've got two extra living rooms and a lovely kitchen and everything so you know at first glance it seemed like a no-brainer
0: yeah. two living rooms between five people yeah
1: yeah so which is pretty unheard of in London um so yeah it seemed like a dream come true in terms of renting in London yeah it sounds like there's a butt coming <laughs> yep a lot of big bucks coming yeah so I guess starting from the most recent incident that we've had in a whole host of catastrophes really has been our bathroom so i mean a few months ago i mentioned to the estate agent that there's been brown water leaking down from the ceiling and uh, you know they came around and had a look and they said oh well it's just damp you know that's what happens in london houses and then Last week, my housemates noticed that it looked like there was a big crack in it. So we sent an email to the estate agents and said the the roof looks like it's going to come in. And they said um, the landlord has advised that it's very unlikely to collapse before the estate agents return back from holiday, which was the 3rd of Jan. Two days later, my housemate was on the toilet, actually.
0: So we're just going into the bathroom now.
1: Yeah, I'm just opening the door to show you. And this happened. <laughs> so, I mean, to to describe what happened, there's a massive hole in the ceiling where you can clearly see that it's just completely rotted through, um, which seeing as we've noticed it over a period of several months must have been the accumulation of like months of leaking. It's like loads of rotten plasterboard, heavy, massive chunks. I mean, you can, that's like a small shard of, of what the total mass of of what fell down was. Um, And she was sat on there and luckily just these small shards there but just fell on her and she just got a small bump on her head. But this one is like, you know, if that fell on you, you, you'd you'd be seriously injured. We sent them a message about it saying, um, you know, the ceiling's just collapsed on top of someone. And um, they didn't even say sorry, they just said... I'm not available today," uh, was what my estate agent said when I texted him. You know, aside from their total neglect leading up to the incident, it just was really, you know, it felt really horrible to feel like you're like you're a fellow human being doesn't even care what's actually happened to you.
0: The situation Egrain's describing might be familiar to you. One in five households in England and Wales now privately rents the place that they live in. That's according to census data that's just come out. But the number of properties available across the country, not only in London, is falling. And so if you're trying to rent today, you'll likely find yourself in tough competition of who can pay the most for properties that in many cases aren't fit to be lived in. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, inside the UK's home rental crisis. So there are clear structural problems in this house that nobody's sorting out at the moment. Can you show me around some of the other issues that you've had?
1: So, I mean, firstly, I can show you down here. We've got, um, so this is in, in the living room, which is a lovely, you know, massive space, but just... We, it's unfortunate that the the damp is such a huge problem in this house. Look, can you see this wall? It's just wow. com- so so this wall, I'm just pointing at one of the walls and it's about I don't know how much would you say about a meter high of just complete um damp damp and you can put your hand on it and you can feel, feel it. you can feel like water running off. It, it is it's cold and it's yeah.
0: and it's wet, it's completely sodden yeah. that
1: wall. Um, and we've mentioned this this to them uh, like uh, a year ago um and nothing's been done and and yeah, it's just ongoing problem and especially you know my my boyfriend has quite severe asthma. there's proof that um damp and mold in in living spaces is having severe health effects so it's horrible not to feel safe in your own house, that, you know, either the ceiling's going to fall on you or you're going to get breathing problems. What's been said by the letting agents when you've complained about the mould? A bit. We've mentioned it for since we first had our winter here, which was um, two years ago. And it's just been, this is a problem you have in all London houses and... <laughs> Um, it's about how you are managing it as tenants. And they had the cheek to send us a email guide about how to manage mould in your home. And the other thing is we can't afford to heat the house um, constantly. We're trying as best as we can. So then the boiler broke on Christmas Eve, so we haven't really had hot water or um, central heating the whole time. So we have have to be using these little small electric heaters.
0: And it's not even warm in here. It's not even close to warm. Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're just putting on the heating, these little tiny heaters for a bit in the evening sometimes. We just got our bill through for the month of December and it's normally around £200 and it was £540. We all got a massive shock yesterday when that bill came in. Are you Um, going to be able to afford to pay that? Well, I, you know, we're going to just have to scrimp and save for the next month, I think. Um, you know, none of us have had a pay rise or anything, um, so it's going to be tough. But that's the other thing that's happened, is that a few months ago, the landlord proposed increasing the rent by 13% against the backdrop of all of these problems that we've had. Um, and I was going to... I also got the email up to... Um, yeah, come we show, have a look? Yeah. So this is... Um, This is the original email that we received which said um, we understand this is a significant increase in monthly rent but there has been a fairly large increase in monthly rental figures in the area in the last 12 months and the landlord feels this now represents market value for a five-bedroom property while looking at other comparable properties on the market. And it's it's just scary at the moment because you know, relatively to a lot of other people that I know this is actually fairly a good situation. Um, How can this be a good situation? Well, I mean, just in terms of the fact that at least, you know, the, the rent that we're being asked to pay is towards the lower end of the spectrum of what a lot of my friends have been seeing when they're looking on spare room, and and you know, you're looking at spare room adverts. We have done a bit of looking, um, and you've got hundreds of people requesting for one room. So landlords know that if people can't afford the rent or they're not willing to pay that, then they've they've got a whole. Line of people that would just move in instead. So you don't feel that you've got any rights or protections as a tenant at all.
0: L. Hunt, you've written for The Guardian about all sorts of topics, which I'd say often centre around this kind of millennial malaise. And notably, recently, You've been writing about our instability around housing, you know, being part of what's called generation rent. How bad has the situation got with renting in the UK in the past year?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've always known about this housing crisis in London and major cities specifically, with property being unaffordable to buy and people being resigned to rent as a result. But now, um, with the rise in mortgage rates, it's hitting rent the hardest. And that's because of both a shortage of housing supply and a rise in demand since the pandemic. So before the pandemic, rents were tracking with earnings, um, but now it's completely untethered. And as a result, it's created this rental market where letting agents and landlords can essentially name their price and someone will pay it. The competition is out of hand, not just in a financial sense, but we have now um, sort of queues out the door for people trying to view properties that are available for rent, people snapping them up sight unseen.
0: Why has that happened then? What's behind it?
2: So there's a couple of things and of course, that comes down a lot to the pandemic, accelerating trends in all kinds of areas of life that we were already underway. So in one sense, it's this post-pandemic return to the city where people who left London and other places for more kind of spacious areas or, or rural areas have decided to return. So that's put pressure on the rental market. The rise in mortgage rates means that people who otherwise would have bought are now being forced back into renting to sort of bide their time and see what happens. And then there's this uh, ballooning student population, um, again, centered around the big cities. So essentially, you've got all these people looking for rental properties in a country that hasn't increased stock uh, significantly in the last decade.
0: And the tens of thousands of properties have been taken off the market, haven't they?
2: Exactly. A lot of private landlords have exited the market and sold up because of tighter regulations. The other factor that we've seen is with people working from home. People want space. They want a spare bedroom to be a home office. And that means that those sorts of two bedroom, three bedroom houses and studio apartments are under particular uh, pressure. If you're a couple you maybe would have went for a two-bedroom house in the past. Now you're looking for a third for the working from home. So you have this increased demand, both in people looking for houses, but also fewer houses and less space for them to move themselves into.
0: What impacts are you noticing that having to stay in rented accommodation and not buy or having to spend an increasing percentage of your earnings on renting is having on people's lives and the kind of decisions that that they want to make in other elements of their lives? I
2: think one of the things that frustrates me about this sort of discussion of the housing crisis in general is that we talk about it as though it is a part of life rather than kind of the very underpinning of all of it, right? Like it, it, it is something that influences every other aspect and your choices. And there's a really big difference between renters experience of that and homeowners experience of that like they have both have pressures but increasingly renters now are falling behind and having those pressures encroach on areas of their life that we wouldn't have otherwise seen as a fair trade-off for something as basic as housing so in the first instance I think I have witnessed this personal toll of this housing crisis with seeing friends trying to get houses the stress it takes um, the uncertainty, the constant refreshing of these right move websites, it's not nothing. Like it is a real burden to carry where you don't know where you're going to be in a month or six months. When the sheer fact of housing, coupled now with rising bills, is taking up so large a proportion of your income, the trade offs become quite substantial, particularly when you're heading into your 30s and 40s where you're making decisions that shape the rest of your life. If you are in a couple and you are in a position where you're wanting children, uh, when so much of your income is being set aside for those sorts of just the facts of living. You know, that does make an impact on whether to pursue IVF, how long for, whether to have a second child. Um, So many people I know might be on track to to be thinking about um, those decisions, but have postponed because they're renting and unable to afford to buy. And you do want some kind of stability. And so that's the kind of thing that I would like for us to to bring into this conversation about the housing crisis is that it is not just about houses and renters are not a second-class kind of citizen. We need to put the mechanisms in place where renting can be a viable long-life decision that allows for things like, mm, I want a dog, I want to put up pictures in the wall and I'm going, if I'm moving in this house and paying for rent, I'm, I want to live in it fully, not while I bide my time to save up for a deposit, which increasingly doesn't seem like an option.
0: To find out how that feels, I spoke to Sam, who rents in South London. He's been saving for a deposit for years, but he says that his hope of owning a home feels like it's slipping away.
3: Back in 2021, off the back of the pandemic, I had to move back in with my parents for a short while. So after summer last year, I was able to find a place in in Camberwell. I was really happy to to finally find somewhere and and sign like a a 12 month contract and sort of start to get back on my feet. I'm 36 now. I'm I left home at 19 and I have on average had to move house every year through various reasons, sometimes personal reasons and sometimes because landlords have have wanted to take the flat back over.
0: What happened?
3: So about 9 months in To my initial contract, I received a letter from the letting agent informing me that I'd been served a Section 21 no-fault eviction notice from the landlord.
0: So to clarify, a Section 21 is an order that landlords can give out if they want to remove a tenant. They have to give at least two months' notice and the tenant's deposit needs to be returned to them. When you were issued with that notice, Sam, did you understand what it had mean for you?
3: I was already aware of what a Section 21 was. And, you know, I'd heard multiple stories of people being served Section 21 notices because, you know, they'd asked the landlord to deal with damp or mould or with repairs that the landlord just didn't want to or didn't want to have to deal with. In my personal case, I hadn't really asked much of the landlord during my time there. So I was kind of wondering what it was that I might have done wrong in the eyes of the landlord. I started looking and it 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 quickly became clear to me that the market was becoming very competitive. Um I was going to various properties and I was being told that you know I was one of 12 people in a day and it you know you could see that they were very much trying to like get us in and out as quickly as possible.
0: What kinds of things were you seeing?
3: The, the situation in September was so bad that I was actually forced to just abandon looking. And so I actually went and lived with a friend. He was in the process of selling. So I, um, I only had three months that I could stay there. And in that time, you know, I was able to just rest for 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 a month and a half. But then in mid-November... I then had to start looking again, and and that's when I really noticed, you know, even since September that it that it it had become even worse, you know, following the the, the whole mini budget fiasco. Everywhere that I was looking at in September had then gone up again by like another two three hundred pounds a month. Wow. Yeah, I quickly became aware that I was also going to have a problem with competition. Some of the places, I mean, I viewed one place that was around 1,500 pounds a month. Um, It it had been emptied out, but it had really moldy curtains. You could smell damp. And this was it after it had been cleaned and prepared for viewings. You know, I was was getting pretty desperate. I'm also self-employed, and I knew my earnings had been affected dramatically, you know, during the pandemic and i knew that it was going to be difficult to prove that i could afford somewhere I, I i knew that i would have to use my savings to satisfy the reference criteria so you know not only was i looking at maybe having to go competitive i was also having to consider offering like 6 months up front
0: so if the rent was going to be 1500 per month you're looking at what 9 grand up front
3: yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And it, it wasn't just six months up front, you know, I was also, a lot of places was like, and then the next six months you have to pay on month four or five. So it was kind of like, not only did I have to for, like fork out that lump sum now, I would in four or five months have to do it again. And actually one place seriously asked me if I could stump up the full 12 months in one go.
0: So you've moved in. How settled do you feel able to be where you are right now, Sam? Have you got all your stuff out of storage? You know, have you have you laid out the places you'd like it to be?
3: I did make the flat quite nice. I got all my furniture unpacked. I got everything out of boxes. I started thinking about where I want to put things, where my houseplants go, where I could maybe hang a picture. And in my mind, I was like, you know, don't get too comfortable.
0: Coming up, we speak to Matt Hutchinson from spareroom.co.uk about what the government should be doing to sort out this crisis. Matt Hutchinson, you're the communications director of Spare Room, which, for anyone who doesn't know, is a website that helps people find rooms or entire properties to rent. Spare Room's been going since 2004 and you've now got thousands of properties across the UK. For people who are looking to rent at the moment, what's the demand like on your site and what's the availability like?
4: We've never seen things like they are now. Um, demand is at an all-time high well. It's certainly hit an all-time high towards the end of last year. Things calmed down a bit over Christmas. but. Demand has been beyond anything we've ever seen and supply at the same time has been at a 10-year low. So we've seen people really struggling to find places to rent. It's been incredibly difficult. And as a result, rents have been shooting up.
0: Are you seeing this as mainly a city problem or is it spread into rural areas across the UK as well, this renting crisis?
4: I mean, it's everywhere. We um, we looked at average rents across the UK comparing the last quarter of 2022 with the same quarter previously and every single region of the UK had seen rents go up by double digits apart from Scotland and that was entirely because rents were inflated a couple of years ago for the COP summit there and that's that sort of distorted things but rents are just shooting up everywhere.
0: What's the average number of messages that people would tend to get for a room?
4: Um, It can vary depending on where it is but the Rather than actual number of messages, we sort of look at the number of people contacting. And I think at the beginning of the year in London, the average number was four and it's doubled to eight by this time at the end of the year. And that doesn't really tell the story because some ads get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. This is spread out across sort of thousands of of ads. Um, But we've heard stories of people putting an ad on Spare Room one evening, going to bed and waking up to two or three hundred messages the next day it's like advertising a job and hundreds of people applying. You're sort of looking for reasons to reject people. And some people, you won't even see their applications. If you've got one flat and 300 people who want to take it, some people aren't even going to get to talk to the landlord, you know, however reliable they are as renters. And this is where that point comes in about people offering to pay money up front. We've had people saying they needed to submit a written statement alongside their application. It's got to the point where you may have the money, you may be an amazing tenant, you may never have missed a payment, you may have impeccable references, you might be the ideal person to rent that property, and you might not even get to see it.
0: There are reports you hear of people feeling that they've been discriminated against on the basis of their race, nationality, sexuality, for example, in terms of whether they get replies. Do you have any evidence of that happening on Spare Room?
4: It's really difficult for us to tell, is the the honest answer to that, because it's hard to see if somebody has discriminated by not taking an action um It's hard to know who's replying to what based on what we can't really read into people's intent if they've had hundreds of messages. but we've heard anecdotally from people that they've certainly felt that that you know somebody has not replied to them over somebody else because of something in their you know in their background or something about them they felt discriminated against because of it's incredibly hard for us to prove that as intent um but every instance of that that is reported, we would absolutely investigate.
0: And for people who are landlords, I mean, you know, as you've said, a lot of the supply has gone out of the market. What do you think should be done to try and encourage people to keep their houses up for rent?
4: Yeah, and it's a tricky one because, you know, renters in particular are wary of landlords. And there's a very difficult conversation we need to have in the UK about where that supply comes from because... You know, you'd think at a time like this that landlords would be delighted. And actually, landlords are leaving the market in large numbers. And the ones that we surveyed last year, you know, over 90% of landlords were dissatisfied with government's approach to renting anyway. So the market's not really working for anybody. Um, Government seems to be happy to squeeze out some of the smaller buy to let landlords, uh, but nothing is coming in to replace them. We don't seem to have a long term housing strategy that's really going to change this. Everybody seems focused on what they can announce that will help them get elected in a couple of years' time. But this is a generation thing. You can't fix housing in a year or two. This needs to be sorted out for, you know, the next 20, 25 years for that to be the target.
0: What reasons did landlords give for feeling dissatisfied, then, with how the government's handling this?
4: The thing they're struggling with, I think, is a couple of things the government did a few years ago. And one is to introduce a 3% stamp duty surcharge for second homes, um, which makes it more expensive to buy a rental property. Um, And then they also scrapped any kind of um, tax relief for mortgage interest payments. And that just added to landlords' costs, essentially. It used to be the case that maybe 10 years ago, you could buy a rental property, you know, fit it out, get it on the market and just make money. And it's much harder than that now. There's much more regulation. Costs have gone up. Interest rates are rising. The cost of finding people to renovate properties and materials is rising. And a lot of landlords are just looking at it and going, it's not really worth the work. I'm going to go and do something else
0: interest rates are rising the base rate is now at its highest point in 14 years and that does mean that a lot of landlords are looking at the situation and just finding it untenable how long can this situation go on for
4: i think the worrying thing is that's the question we've asked ourselves before and you get to a point where you think well house prices and rents have got so overinflated how can this be sustainable but every time we ask that question Things go up, Um, and it's hard to know where the breaking point is because it feels like we should have passed it by now. There should have been a point where people just say, "We can't afford these rents. We can't move. We're going to leave cities and go and live somewhere more affordable." And some of that has been happening, Um, but it's, it's one of those things that everybody needs somewhere to live, and so people will afford it and make cutbacks in other places, and people just go without to to have somewhere to live, and it's not sustainable in the long term.
0: What should the government be doing then to try and help renters?
4: So I think there's a few things. I think the first thing in terms of just immediate supply, there are millions of empty bedrooms in the UK and owner-occupied properties. And for most people, they won't want to rent those out, they won't want to take in a lodger. But if a tiny percentage of them do, that could free up a little bit of supply that we need immediately. And it also benefits those homeowners dealing with the cost of living crisis. And the government has a rent a room scheme tax incentive that is designed for exactly that purpose. So that could be something that could happen immediately. But there's two things, really. And one is to start thinking longer term about housing, not think in two, three-year terms about it, but think what is going to fix this for, you know, potentially for people who aren't even born yet, when they hit their 20s, how will they be able to afford a home? Um, And I think one of the biggest shifts that has to happen is that back in the 80s, the decision was taken by government to fund people rather than stuff. And what that means is that instead of creating stuff and bringing prices down, we just give people money to afford them. And that could be housing benefit, it could be right to buy, it could be all sorts of things. Um, And we're just, all that really does is prop up prices. It doesn't help. And housing benefit is essential. It's there for a a really important reason. It's there to help people at a time of crisis, but it shouldn't be a way of affording your rent for 10, 20 years of your life. It just shouldn't be. We need to find a way to spend some money on creating housing, not just giving people money to afford it.
0: So we can't just think about this as a short-term problem. Surely it's going to have repercussions for years.
4: So all of the the conversations that are happening now are about the rental market now and what might happen next year. And a few people are talking about, you know, this being a generational thing and thinking longer term. But I think the thing people aren't talking about is if we increasingly have people reliant on housing benefits before their rent, and if we have a generation who don't own a home because they can't afford one, what happens when that generation retires? What happens when... Literally millions of people stop working and have no asset to sell and they can't downsize. What happened? Like the the cost to treasury of a generation retiring and requiring housing until the day they die is going to be astronomical. And if we don't fix this now, it's not affecting us just now. It will totally flatten us in 20, 30 years' time. It
0: seems to me like you've all done your best to work within this system, yeah. to alert the letting agent and the landlord when you've had these serious structural problems. Yeah. You've put stuff in writing. How does it feel then when you're not getting any response to
1: that? It feels hopeless, honestly, because, you know, I, I'm part of the London Renters Union. We've consulted with them. We've we've tried to get advice about what we can do. And, When you've got a rent increase, for example, there is something that you can do where you go to a tribunal and you can try and challenge it, but you can only do that if you've got something called a Section 13 notice, which is where they have to kind of formally notify you of the proposed rent increase. But if your landlord in the contract says that there can be a rent increase, then they don't have to give you that notice. So there are these very kind of vague mechanisms in place to help tenants, but they're pretty ineffective when it comes down to it and, you know, It just feels like there's no protections from the local council, from the local government. And it's very frustrating because you're, you know, we spent ages writing this letter, um, talking to the union about how it was written. And then all we got back was the rent increases fair, And so there's no sense on which you can appeal to the good faith of a person because it's the, the system as a whole rather than the individuals. How long do you think you'll stay here for? When we initially moved in, we thought several years, but now it's just, you know, it's a nightmare, honestly. And you wake up in the morning and you're wondering what's, what, what you know, the fresh disaster you're going to be dealing with. Um, I'm lying awake at night anxious about my breathing, my boyfriend's coughing. We want now, I think we're all getting a bit fed up and we'd like to move out, but looking on spare room, it just seems totally... It's a war zone out there in terms of trying to find somewhere to live. So it doesn't actually feel like a possibility to be able to even leave here. Um, this is, even though it's, you know, ridiculously, you know, horrendous here. It doesn't feel like
0: there the other options are going to be any better. Thank, Thank you so much.
1: much.
0: Thanks to Egrain and Sam, and to the London Renters Union for putting us in touch with them. Thanks as well to Matt Hutchinson and Elle Hunt. You can read Elle's writing at theguardian.com. She did a piece recently called Is Modern Life Ruining Our Powers of Concentration? Which, if you're like me and basically always checking your phone for no reason, you're going to want the answers to. If you want guidance on housing and your rights, I recommend having a look at the Citizens Advice website. That's www.cid.org. Citizensadvice.org.uk. They've got loads of free, helpful guides on there. This episode was produced by Lucy Hoff and sound designed by Adam Bransbury. The executive producer was Elizabeth Cassin. We'll be back tomorrow. This
4: is The Guardian.